welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. The story of the Klinzyza caribou is a positive one, a rare thing these days when it comes to the recovery of species at risk and lost habitat. In our second episode looking at this successful recovery program, we talked to Clayton Lamb, a scientist from the University of British Columbia, about some of the factors contributing to the success of the program and what the future holds. So my name is Clayton Lamb, and I'm a wildlife scientist at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Clayton. Tell me a little bit about the Caribou Project, how successful it's been, because it has been a success, unless I'm mistaken. The the focus was on Southern Mountain Caribou, and these are uh, an endangered group of caribou that basically live in British Columbia and Alberta, kind of in the, you know, bottom um, two thirds of each province. And, you know, as their name says, they're mostly reliant on uh, mountainous areas. And these caribou have declined by about 40% in the last 20 years. And within that time, we've actually lost about a third of the actual herds in that area. So, you know, a lot of decline in abundance and then pretty strong range retraction of, you know, actual loss of the groups. And so, you know, what uh, the work that we're working on here, uh, led by Wes Moverly and Soto First Nations, I mean, they've successfully uh, tripled uh, herd of caribou. And of course, that's sitting against this backdrop of pretty severe decline. So to, you know, take a species and triple it in less than a decade um, is obviously a pretty unprecedented um success, you know, given the the narrative of, um, you know, pretty somber caribou news uh, in this region in the last few decades. And what led to the in, the large decline in numbers over that period of time? What, what was the biggest contributor to that? So the, you know, at the heart of this issue is a, is a changing landscape that is um, shifting predator-prey dynamics. And the way that landscape is being changed is, is through two pathways, human alteration directly of that landscape through industrial resource extraction, uh, logging and uh, oil and gas and building roads and, um, you know, damming um, rivers and turning, you know, what used to be migration corridors into lakes. So all these ways in which we have changed the landscape directly and then climate change as well. Uh, so climate change is obviously um, around us and is making winters less severe. And so we're seeing white-tailed deer uh, increase northward. And all of these changes, as I say, are changing the predator-prey dynamic. And what that means basically from a caribou's perspective is essentially there are more um, other ungulates, so hooved animals that are you know, not caribou, are increasing in abundance in their habitats. And with those other animals, come predators. And, you know, as you'd expect, it's a, you know, a natural thing to happen, but the increased abundance of those predators is a problem for caribou. Caribou evolved in these landscapes, you know, with fairly low predator densities. They 
they kind of eked out a living on somewhat unproductive landscapes that obviously didn't have a lot of other um, ungulates and predators. And now as we shift the balance in those landscapes, the caribou then basically can't deal with that volume of predators. And so, you know, uh, the ultimate cause is this habitat issue, but then the proximate cause of the declines are really that caribou are dying too fast by predators. So the predation rate is unsustainable. And the predator-prey dynamics was upset because more, is it because more predators follow in the other ungulates or is it because of open space and roads and the logging roads and that sort of thing? Because that changes everything too, right? Well, exactly. So I think it's both in that, you know, obviously if the predators had nothing to eat, then they probably wouldn't um, be as big of a issue. So I think the the majority of the issue is that there are, you know, there's just more biomass for those predators to eat, but the roads do shift the way in which the predators move around the landscape. And so a, a colleague of mine, Melanie Dickey, works a lot on this, and she basically can show us some really high frequency um, GPS data on wolves that when they get on roads and seismic lines or power lines, they can move much, uh, much faster and go further in a day. So we're kind of seeing the predator-prey dynamic get upset in two dimensions. Like you say, the, the predator's prey is becoming more abundant in caribou habitat, and the predators themselves are, you know, becoming more efficient in caribou habitat because of the roads. And, you know, another thing that we see is when roads or other things, other kind of linear features are pushed up into the mountains, you know, from the valley bottom up into high elevation, then that actually brings uh, predators, just creates a little highway where they can get right up into caribou habitat. And a good example is snowmobiles. So, you know, when you sled up into the Alpine to, um, you know, and enjoy your, your winter recreation, it unfortunately creates these, you know, perfect paths for something like a wolf to get on and get right up into caribou habitat. So, yeah, like you say, there's, there's multiple um, dimensions that are uh, causing challenges in those predator prey um, systems. And part of the program for the Quinzyza was getting rid of some of the wolves, correct? That was a little controversial at the time. Yeah, and I, I would say that it it probably remains to controversial to some degree for for certain folks, of course. And I, I I think I would say that you know to the listeners, the the goal for the predator reductions is to reduce the density of predators uh, to a point that caribou can sustain themselves and increase to, you know, avoid extirpation. And the goal is to sort of balance that predator-prey dynamic in such a way that the abundance of wolves more, natural, more naturally reflects the density of wolves that caribou evolved with. And so the predator reductions are sort of this last-ditch effort. It's not something that the, um, you know, West Moberly and Soto First Nations necessarily, you know, wanted to do. It's something they had to do to sustain those caribou. How important have the First Nations been to the success of this? I mean, they've been essential. I mean, there there's not very many other examples. I don't actually know of any where um, a herd that was just about gone, you know, there was only 38 animals in 2013 and declining rapidly. Uh, they wouldn't be with us here today, those caribou, if, you know, something hadn't been done. There's, I can't think of another example where a herd has uh, been tripled um, after being on the brink of extirpation. And so... You know, the role of uh, West Moberly First Nations and Soto First Nations, I think I think there's many uh, different ways that they have helped uh, make this this a success. And 
and also the relationships that they have with uh, with other folks that have you know helped them as well. I think the the project is truly collaborative and and does a really good job of uh, braiding knowledge systems and you know making the most out of you know different ways of looking at problems in the world and you know I think obviously the, the success of the project speaks to you know that way of collaborating because this is really important because for those first nation tribes the caribou are sacrosanct i don't know another word to use right now um but they're their source of meat and food and tradition that they basically gave up in order to save this herd correct well yeah so in uh in the 1970s west moverly first nations voluntarily stopped hunting these caribou so like you say they elders and people on the land could tell that these caribou were not doing well. And uh, just to sort of put that in perspective, it wasn't until I, I think the early 2000s, until the early 2000s that British Columbia actually halted the hunt of those same caribou for, uh, for settlers. And so, you know, we do see this sort of this lag in, in action that the nations actually uh, realize that quite a long time ago, I mean, 50 years ago. So they, you know, they have not hunted caribou in a meaningful way in those those mountains for, for some time. And one of the core aims of the project is to rekindle a culturally meaningful hunt of those caribou to, to reinstate, you know, the, the practice of hunting and the culture and, you know, all the things that come along with that. And um, you know, that is also tied to the treaty rights that um, these First Nations were were promised from Canada. So West Moverly and, and Soto are uh, signatories of Treaty 8, which is a, a treaty between Canada and uh, these nations and, you know, many other nations in northern British Columbia and Alberta. And, the, you know, a piece of the treaty was that they were promised uh, that they would be able to continue on with their way of life as if they'd never entered into treaty. And, you know, you could imagine that um, at the time when, you know, there was no uh, agriculture and it hadn't been converted to the landscape we see, na we see now, it did seem sort of probably endless to everybody. And it, it's fairly obvious that that promise has not been upheld you know i think we as canadians and people of north america know that there have been you know horrible things uh done to first nations and indigenous peoples um across canada and you know the the reserve system and of course those caribou are gone so you know th that promise has not been upheld by canada and i think that that's sort of what we are working together with British Columbia and Canada to try to heal some of, you know, those wrongs. Now, you've, you've said that the, the population of the caribou themselves has tripled since the program started. What are the big factors to success? Like you said, this hasn't happened anywhere else. So what differentiates this from what's going on in other places? Yeah, so as, uh, you know, we discussed uh, earlier, obviously, the, the predator-prey dynamic is not working and hasn't been working for these caribou. They were dying at unsustainable levels. And, you know, we were sort of seeing issues on two fronts. The adult females were being killed by wolves. So obviously, that is a problem. Both, you know, the caribou are then, you know, 
directly declining because the moms are declining and they obviously then can't produce a calf that year because they're gone. And even the ones that had calves, we were seeing poor recruitment. So, you know, those cows are being born and then somehow by the next year, those cows were not really around. So really the goal was to increase the survival of adult females and their calves. So right away uh, when the, the nations identified the Klinziza, um uh, as a problem and wanted to begin their ambitious recovery effort in 2013, the first thing they did was, you know, um, work with indigenous trappers to start uh, working on reducing the density of wolves in, in caribou habitat. And, you know, obviously that uh, directly reducing the, the number of wolves has that positive effect on, you know, reducing predation rates. And then in 2014, uh, a maternal pen was started. And so maternity penning is basically, uh, it's a high elevation enclosure that's in caribou habitat where adult female caribou are brought in in March and they're basically uh, looked after up there in about a 30 acre um, enclosure by uh, indigenous guardians. So they're, they're fed and they're watered and they're um, seen every day and they now are having their cows right now. We had the first calf a couple of days ago and in the next couple of weeks we will continue to have those calves. So we brought 19 caribou into the pen in uh, March 2022, the most we've ever had. And 17 of those 19 were pregnant. So we could have, you know, we expect a number of calves to be born and then they're released. So in uh, the end of July or early August, basically when the calves are older than six weeks old, we release them all. And the goal there is, you know, one, obviously having all the caribou in the pen and feeding them is, is good for mom because she is safe in the pen. And then most importantly, she can have her calf in safety. And the calves are really vulnerable when they're young, um, especially in those first few weeks. They just, uh, they're very easy prey for predators. And we've learned that by having some uh, camera collars on some caribou that are not in the pen. So sort of in the last decade, the technology of GPS collars have advanced to now actually have a GPS collar that can have a small little camera inside of it. And we can see what is going on from the animal's perspective. And so we've, we've deployed some of those on animals that are not in the pen. And um, we've, we can see that they are having calves because we were worried they just were, you know, they were pregnant, but then they somehow we'd fly and, and try to find them in the spring and they wouldn't have calves. So we didn't know if they were boarding their calves or where they were going. And the camera callers have shown us that they are having live calves. But then within a couple of days, those cows are being killed by wolverines or grizzly bears. And so, you know, that actually still remains a small challenge in the herd. Um, but of course, in the maternal pen, those predators are fully um, excluded and those calves grow till they're strong enough. And then they're, yeah, they're released. Yeah. And that just underlines how successful this program has been when you say that you've got you know, 19, 17 of which are carrying and you're hoping you have obviously 17 calves, but, you know, nature may not allow that to happen. So it's incredible when you start looking at the math, because <laughs> I mean, for me, that's the first thing I did. I'm looking at what the number was 10 years ago and where you are now. And what is what's the herd number now? So, 
So there was uh, 114 as of March 2022. And yeah, I mean, I think it's it wouldn't be unreasonable to think we'll have 130, 140 come next March. So, you know, you really start to see the, the momentum pick up when the numbers start to grow. I mean, it's just that simple sort of compounding interest type type equation, you know, not, and not to like trivialize them, but it is when you're doing the math, that is really how it works. As the population grows, you get a lot more bang for your buck from the same growth rate. So what does what does the future look like? Like, do, obviously, you've got a successful program, but what's the plan for this particular herd? Does it just do you just keep going along in the course, or are there some other ideas that are floating around how we can help this thing work? Yeah, so I think we have plans uh, to work, continue work in this herd, and then also expand. And so I'll, I'll start within this herd, and the goal for the Klinziza is twofold, to get them to a point where they are self-sustaining, or at least, you know, we can shape the landscape in such a way that they uh, require at least the minimal amount of um, support from us. And that is a habitat-based solution then. So, you know, the future for us really is about restoration and trying to heal that landscape. and. Uh, you know, for again, for context, there is really no examples of um, fully restoring a landscape and then having it support caribou. This is basically new ground that is being broken here in Kanziza by West Moberly and Soto First Nation. And really, it's because um, the restoration that's been done to date has been a little bit piecemeal. There's been some pretty good restoration done in Alberta, but it's sort of done, you know, maybe within one oil and gas company's lease area or something like that but it's not done at like the scale of a caribou herd and say this is the herd that we're going to restore their landscape and see if we can make this better for them and really that's the the vision for cleanziza and why it's different than other herds and why you know cleanziza is probably the right place to do it is in february 2022 west moberly uh First Nations, Soto First Nations, the province of British Columbia and Canada all signed uh, what's called a partnership agreement to protect a large swath of habitat um, in this zone. And it's a it's a pretty landmark agreement that protects about 8,000 square kilometers of caribou habitat. And, you know, that is about one and a half times the size of Banff National Park. So pretty substantial that this, you know, this is bigger than Canada's flagship national park. And the reason that's important is when you do your restoration efforts to, you know, um, turn a road or a a pipeline or something back into forest, that investment is secured. It's not as if you're spending money healing a road in one valley while the next valley over is getting a new a new road with with cut blocks. So there are some challenges in restoration when you're sort of chasing your tail on a landscape that doesn't have that protection. So here I think we have an opportunity and funding from British Columbia and Canada to actually, you know, spend our efforts in restoring the landscape and and assessing how those caribou do. That is a massive undertaking. Um, You know, we're talking about tens of thousands of excavator hours and, and people on the ground and thousands of trees. And so this is, you know, about taking a landscape scale approach to restoration, which is sort of unlike anything that has really been done elsewhere. But 
uh, ambitious undertakings obviously are our game and and doing the impossible so i don't think that it's it's out of out of character but it is the kind of thing that's like oh this is gonna this is gonna be a big job like <laughs> okay we better get ready um so i think that's the future for cleanziza and then really and tied to cleanziza is that we will not be able to pen forever in cleanziza and basically you become a victim of your own success with maternal penning because the the effect of the maternal pen is related to how many caribou you can put in it. So, uh, you know, when you only have 30 caribou and you put all 30 in there, you have a great uh, ability to affect the population because they all get that bump in survival and recruitment and, you know, it really has a big effect. And if you have a thousand caribou and you only put 30 in there, even if you double their recruitment, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to all the other animals so you get diminishing returns as the population grows which obviously we're doing a very good job of increasing that population so at some point in the near future we will you know eventually have this sort of return on investment type discussion like you know when do we just let them do their thing and we you know stop maternal penning so that at that point we would then start looking at neighboring herds or even herds that have been extirpated and thinking about how we can you know either bring back extirpated herds or support neighboring herds and range expansions or things like that with maternal penning yeah because it was extirpation of the burnt pine uh yeah. herd that kind of triggered this whole project correct yes and it's exactly. happened and it's happened in a few other places too like banff national park i believe there's no yeah. Um, there's no caribou left uh, and Jasper's population is way down. Most of them live downtown now. Um, <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, so it is one of these things where there are these triggers. Will this kind of project, does it have applications for other species? At the highest level, I think that one of the big lessons here is that the collaboration between uh, Western and indigenous ways of knowing, you know, obviously had a tremendous uh, effect here. And so, you know, just some some ways in which those uh, those ways of knowing, you know, contributed uh, together to make this happen is some of the the proximal causes of decline were, you know, obviously, um, you know, known by people on the land and you know, indigenous and local knowledge, but of course you know, that was also a, a Western science type um, piece of knowledge that through collaring animals and, you know, 40 years of pretty intensive science on what is happening to caribou in Western North America, that when this issue, you know, finally came to a head, obviously, uh, West Moberly and, and their science partners, their Western science partners were in a really good place to understand what the issues were. And then on the indigenous knowledge front, I mean, you know, the the caribou knowledge that we have, as I say, is largely in the last 40 years from a Western science perspective. We have a pretty refined understanding of how they've declined. You know, not that the science has turned that direction at all. We've basically been monitoring them down to zero. But, you know, what the indigenous knowledge helped us understand was sort of where those caribou had come from um, in abundance. So, some of the first counts in Klinziza were about 200 animals, which is a lot. Like that seemed like, wow, 200. And there's only 38 by the time, you know, um, we started things in, in uh, 2013. 
but really it, it the indigenous knowledge totally reframed our way of thinking on that because elders shared with us that these caribou were were once abundant as bugs on the landscape or there was you know once a sea of of caribou the the Klinziza herd is a couple thousand square kilometers and you can imagine 200 animals spread across a couple thousand square kilometers would look nothing like bugs on the landscape or a sea of caribou there would be you know one every like many square kilometers so it would it would look more like I, I don't know like a checkerboard with a dot in it basically <laughs> and so you know i think that that really changed our our way of thinking and provided you know a, a richer and deeper way of, of thinking of you know what we'd already lost and that kind of shifting baseline that we all suffer from uh, you know that that helped on on the back end and then moving forward i think the the rights and title of west moverly and soto first nations you know really changed the way in which this conservation action moved forward so you know to begin with they were able to uh start those recovery actions immediately whereas you know in in a lot of cases in colonial government systems there is a number of uh there's a lot of red tape that has to be uh considered and you know a lot of fairly legitimate economic concerns when species at risk recovery comes into play and we see that in america as well where sort of the you know america has a stronger endangered species law than we do but still economics start to hinder the the effectiveness of those laws and you know obviously west moverly and and soto were keen to to look after those caribou and the time to do it was then it was immediate it was an emergency and so they were able to enact those conservation measures immediately and you know work together with um with scientists and which basically started with dr scott mcnay who works for wildlife infometrics and to work together and figure out okay like let's reduce the density of wolves um let's build a maternal pen and you know that had been done uh in the yukon before so that was again sort of like a western uh, idea per se but then the indigenous knowledge came in and sort of well where should we put it we should put it you know closer to caribou habitat and then it was staffed full time by guardians and so you know the the program was collaborative right from the beginning through those different ways of knowledge and and i think you know both groups used the strengths of those knowledges to to uh you know create the the positive outcome we see here is it fair to say that one of the biggest things is that we have all this science, but in the difference with this project is somebody took action on the science? It, exactly. There is a lot of cases we are not information limited. And of course, I make a living generating that information. So it's not the kind of thing that we often say that we don't need any more science. But it's, it's true, right? Like there are a lot of things that we know Sometimes we overstudy things because uh, governments are not keen to act unless they have more certainty. So even though you can sort of know sort of like a common sense thing or it seems likely, on the balance of probability when there are really high economic stakes involved or things are really expensive, then we end up having to sort of uh, increase the certainty even though we kind of have a good inkling on you know what's going on. So. Yeah, I agree. We know what to do for caribou, and this was a really good example of 
First Nations um, and working with independent scientists and, and making that happen. Thanks, Clayton. Clayton Lamb is a scientist from the University of British Columbia working on the Klimzy-Zoc Caribou Herd Project. And that's it for this episode. Thanks to producer Sarah Simpson and social media director Alina Simpson for their help this week. Our theme music and sound logo are by Titan Sound, John Sanfilippo. Make sure to tell a friend about our podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca. I'm Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes.